This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Get 30% shorter average wait time when you buy and book online at DiscountTire.com. Discount Tire, let's get you taken care of. You're listening to a Castaway Media Podcast. Find more great shows at castaway.media or find us on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash castawaypodcasts. Hello and welcome to episode 31 of Potterooney. I'm here in Edinburgh standing in a park on a rainy, wet evening. Friday evening. I'm over in Scotland doing three Father Ted nights. I was in Aden, Aberdeen last night and it was a bit wild and raucous and I'm a bit wrecked, to be quite honest. Uh, this episode, I am talking to Brezzy. You'll know him from The Voice, the coach on The Voice and the band The Blizzards and his solo musical career. But he recently wrote a book called Me and My Mate Jeffrey, which is a, details his struggle with mental health from from a young age and 15 years he struggled with and he felt that he couldn't talk about what was going through his mind he was suffering from anxiety and um, uh, panic attacks and and depression and for 15 years he felt he couldn't tell anybody so that kind of compounded the whole thing it's an amazing book an amazing story and now he's dealing with it and part of the part of that was actually naming naming his depression and calling it Jeffrey and working with it, dealing with it. So it's a really uplifting book and an uplifting story and he's a great man and the work he's doing now for mental health is just only to be admired. He's just fantastic what he's what he's at. So if it's your first time listening to the podcast, do listen to all the uh, back catalogue as well. There's some great interviews there with Ardla Hanlon, for example, Finbar Fury... Frank Kelly, there's a great one with the actor Michael Collins, particularly good that one, and there's a great one with the comedian Willie White which is, yeah, there's lots of great ones, I just can't think of them all now at the minute, but um, yeah, have a listen to them and leave uh, leave uh, a review or a star rating on iTunes and you can um, give me feedback on Twitter, Joe Rooney 1 and on my website www.joerooneycomedian.com um, okay, well, I'm not going to hang on uh, hang on to your attention any longer. I'll let you listen to Brezzy, and I'll see you on the other side. Bye. I know last time we met was at the Electric Picnic. That was a good gig. Yeah, it was, it was an unexpected gig, to be honest. Um, yeah. With Johnny Cronin and Mick Cronin, anything could happen. And I kind of just, they said, just pop down and watch the gig. And, and then I realised half of Mullingar was there and my sister and her boyfriend were there. And I was like, sure, why not? Oh, really? Were yeah. they? Oh, I didn't know. Yeah. They were there. They were, they were down. There was like, the funny thing about it, I think in the, in the actual tent, there was more guards than people. The guards were just like, listen. We'll come in and watch a bit of music. And oh, yeah. There was like a heap of guards at the back. I thought that they expected either a riot or they're just having a bit of fun. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Jeez. Yeah, it was great crack. I, I gig with them the odd time, the Cronins singing yeah, yeah. like, you know, the Cure. Proper music, man. The Cure and all that kind of crack, yeah. yeah. 
Good, they're good, good lads. Yeah, they really are proper yeah. music, man. Actually, I was when I was reading your book, your first gig with the Blizzards was supporting the Cronins, was it? No, it was actually oh, put was on it? by Johnny and Mick. They oh, was used it? To put this uh, gig on in Bambrick, someone in garbage, it isn't now open anymore, and it was like a back, like you, like it wasn't even in the pub. It was at the back of the pub in a little kind of mm. room, and the lads used to put it on. And see, they've been driving. They, it's people like Johnny and Mick that drive mini industries in towns and regions like Westmead and the Midlands and, mm. and we have a very healthy industry down there in terms of bands and music and mm. an awful lot to that like an awful lot of my love for music uh, I, I get I find their their passion for it quite addictive so if you spend two two hours or even two days with Johnny and Mick by the end of it you probably want to pull the head off Johnny but you'd still just be <laughs> you'd be going this you know these guys live and breathe music they, uh, you know. Johnny particularly knows everything about yeah. every band he needs to go a mastermind he has to I know. and <laughs> his specialist subject should just be every band yeah yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. really broad um, yeah so listen I've, I've uh, probably most people come in here I just ask them I, I don't know as much because I've read your book I know more about you than most people that come yeah, in here brilliant that's what to know <laughs> but uh, so you, you, let's go back so you, you grew up in Mullingar correct mm-hmm. yeah and your dad was in the army army man dad and music teacher mother yeah perfect yeah. background and mu- was music a big thing in the house yeah my yeah. mum was a music teacher and my yeah. brother was a very impressive musician and my sisters and everything really and I grew yeah. up from listening to to my sister listened to a lot of goth music and my old pair would be listening to Boney M and Abba and then my bro- dad my brother would be listening yeah. to Sepultura and Metallica and Nice yeah. mixture. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, that's what you need. Absolutely, never, yeah. never. I think that's the one thing my brother always said: never be a genre snob. Appreciate every genre in its own way. You don't have to love every genre, but you know, it it all has its place. Music, it's quite a broad spectrum. Oh, well, absolutely. I don't know what I had. We had John McCormick. <laughs> one of the records was John McCormick. We had about four records, so I had to listen to them. That's now. not a bad so, one. It's not four bad. records is by the end of week. My, we had a lot of records, to be fair. And we used to always have, what was it, Neil Sedaka? That was the, Neil Sedaka, we had one of them, actually. Yeah, yeah. I think every household had <laughs> yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No one listened to it, but they had it. Yeah. And we had a Beatles Top of the Pops albums. You know those albums that's not really the band playing? Yeah, it's, yeah. Oh, yeah. God, that's horrific. The ones that Tesco now play. When you go into Tesco and it's cover, it's, cover it's songs. Covers like, just pay the artist the money the that they deserve for writing the song. Don't be paying, you know, that's why they do it, I think. So they don't have to pay, pay oh, it. There must it? be an issue there. Yeah, why yeah. Why would yeah. they be playing covers of. Songs? It must be cheaper to do. It must yeah. be cheaper, yeah. yeah. That'd be Tesco, right? Yeah. So, like, um, obviously, let's say I when I read the book, I was shocked at the amount of. Uh, struggle that you went through. I was really shocked because mm-hmm. I, I've had panic attacks myself. Mm-hmm. But compared to you, I, I, I just found it amazing that you went through that. It sounded like such a lonely place as well because you can't, you can't uh, not being able to tell people. I think it's my a, biggest issue as a teenager mm-hmm. was not having the language to tell people. Yeah, one thing yeah. you can blame the stigma as well, but for me... Mm. I didn't know what it was. And it, mm. it wasn't just panic attacks. It was a constant mm. level of uneasiness. Um, and people think that I, you know, I'm into sport and I'm, you know, I play Gaelic, rugby, triathlon, whatever it is. When I was younger, I played sport because I had to play it because if I didn't play it, I'd have no, I didn't get any relief from yeah. this. And general anxiety disorder, people have to get their head around what it is. It's not, oh, I go into a room full of people and get anxious. General anxiety disorder is there all the time. It doesn't go away when you're sitting watching TV, when you're lying in your bed, that, that compounding anxiety. And anyone, say, who's going in to do an exam with really deep anxiety and they're stressed about it, try and sleep when you mm-hmm. have that. You won't sleep. You'll mm-hmm. just, you know, people trying to sleep the night before exams or, or stuff like that. That's what it feels like all the time. Mm-hmm. So I was looking for little pockets of relief. And one of the pockets of relief was when I trained and when I played sport uh it went away mm. and i was lucky that i was a big fella um i kind of i was kind of an athletic build that was able to lend itself well to sport but reason really re- the reason i got into sport in the first place wasn't because i absolutely adored sport and all my mates were doing it, it was because i realized quickly it had it had it was it was a medication really and that was a both a scary realization and, and also a positive one yeah you know? and is that because i mean uh, for example i know when i had panic attacks I was never afraid to go on stage, but I was afraid to be walking around the street. Mm. And I thought, I think part of that is because you're in the moment. Say if you're playing a football match, you're in the moment. You're present, yeah. You're in the moment. And yeah, that's, and that's, 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 that's real, the fundamental gist of, 
you know, and this is the stuff as a teenager, you don't have the maturity to understand. I don't mean that in a condescending, patronizing way. And, you know, we have this horrible, we have this horrible way of believing that teenagers' problems are less than ours because they're younger. Oh, they don't have mortgages to pay or families to feed. That's wrong. And that perception of teenagers has to change. Teenagers, what they're dealing with now is I don't think I could have coped with what's been but teenagers are being thrown at the moment. Like, I couldn't imagine what it felt like for a 15-year-old man or, or teenage girl or teenage boy sitting at home Friday night watching Sky News mm. and watching what's happened in Paris and watching how vulnerable we are. Um, people with anxiety issues, the fundamental thing they do is they'll pick the worst-case scenario and they will talk themselves into believing that's going to happen. Mm. And no person on the planet will be able to talk you out of it. And that's frightening. And that's really difficult. And that needs to be readdressed. And only when I readdressed my, the way I thought was only when I started getting better. And, and the, the, the way I did that was through cognitive behavioural therapy, CBT, which mm. is, should be taught in every school. Will it be? No. But we will teach quadratic equations and Shakespeare till mm. comes out our arses. But we won't sit down with teenagers and go, listen, this is normal. It's the most common illness in this country. Mm. We want to help you cope and cope with what life's throwing at you. No, but it's more important to learn Irish poems off. Yeah, it it is pretty bad that people are, are you know, just it's all about academically, but not about the person around it. Not about human bringing, development. Yeah, sure. yeah, yeah. And I sat down with the health minister last week and I said, what are you doing in the schools? And he goes, oh, we're, you know, they're putting something on the junior cert. And I'm like, that's, what's, that, that's pointless. Mm. You know, and, and don't be ticking a box, because that's all that is to you guys. You and Jan O'Sullivan, and I'm sick of holding my tongue on it. You know, I like Leo Varadkar. I have to say, I do like him. And and I think I, this isn't headhunt stuff for me when it comes to mental health. I don't think getting into arguments with the government's the way forward. Mm. And I don't think talking about politics when you're talking about humans is a good thing to do either. Mm. But the reality is they're not doing anything. They're box ticking. And mm. the fact is we have the ability to do something. And the only people who are doing anything are the people who are passionate about, like the teachers or the principals in schools and the mm. students going, no, we're going to change it. Um, but they're not getting the resources to do mm. it. The counsellors are being cut. And uh, we, we live in a very sick place. You know, there's a lot yeah. of sick people with, with anxiety and depression and we need to help them. I, I think it might be a Western uh, society thing in that we, we look at economics as being thing. Like we all, uh, on the news, you'll take the countries economically returning. But what about people's happiness? No, well, this that's you know hilarious. I mean? we, we, we never once talked about the human recession that we face. I mean, yeah. and I had to bring this, you know, I've, I'm in situation and everybody listening to this is going to nod their head and go, I totally understand because I know someone like that. Mm. I, I'm from a regional town where something like a suicide would be quite magnified because you definitely know the person or you'd know a family member. Mm. And the amount of people and this really, really upsets me through the recession that out of what was basically the straw that broke the camel's back was financial stress. Yeah. Uh, and the fact that that happened and the fact, I mean, you know, without getting into it, we're moving on now. We're, you know, macroly and macroeconomic wise, we're getting we're, we're, our GDP is improving. But microeconomics as in the household isn't seeing it yet. And in general, in economics, not actually my degree and it will take a couple of years before the macroeconomics is actually is actually illustrated in the micro in the micro household yeah. but the fact is the reality is we're doing nothing to help these people who've come out of that recession in really dark places and really difficult places and don't know what's happened to them and what's happened to them is they haven't been able to cope and we keep keep going back to that it's about coping strategies what happened to me from the years 15 to 28 to 30 I couldn't cope mm. I wasn't able to cope at life and if somebody taught me all that, I wouldn't have lost all that time and relationships and careers. So I think mm. we have to, for once, for once in Irish society, put the person first, mm. just for once, and see what happens. Yeah, I don't think even, you're talking about economics, but even during the good times, I think we weren't happy. We still had a terrible health system. Yeah. No, we don't have the money. Now, you didn't put it in when we had it. You didn't readdress the issues we have within the yeah. health system. Granted, we didn't lose mm. a lot of um, our nurses and our, our people who went abroad and had to emigrate. And, like, lots of my mates had to emigrate. Mm. Very talented, clever people that could offer a lot to society had to emigrate. Mm. But the reality is, our the reason being, even when the Celtic Tiger, who, as my friend said, is now in a zoo in Germany, is the reason being... 
that during the Celtic Tiger we didn't and you know on, on a side tangent that we're, we weren't mm. nice we're not nice people we don't know how to be rich in Ireland you go to oh, London very vulgar and horrible unbelievable you go to London yeah. I lived there for five years and I mean it's old money and they kind of know how to be rich there we were horrific some people in this country and it was actually I used to it was toxic was probably the best way to describe yeah. it but the reality was back then Money ran the show, status, all that type of thing, and we didn't invest in our house. And also, people were uh, working really hard, constantly working. Like, if lifestyle was gone out the window, and people were living in Cavan and, and commuting to Dublin, and, and culture was out the window. And yeah, so it's about having a nice lifestyle, not bloody well working to make loads of money, isn't it? Well, but that's that, you. you can't bring yes. it with you when you die, you know, and that's, <laughs> yeah. that's the reality of it. And I think yeah. for me, like, the aspect that's, you know, money. Uh, in my case, I'm lucky in a way that I don't have responsibilities. I don't have a mortgage. I don't have children. Mm. And so financial stress wouldn't have the same impact on people who mightn't have the same amount of responsibilities. And mm. I can imagine what it's like for a dad who's lost his job and looking at his three kids in the morning and going, you know, what, what am I going to do here? And then that's, mm. that's petrifying. And I think the support... Straight, we got. We can fix a couple of things here. We can, we can reach out to that father and say, listen, well, number one, we, we can't give you loads of money yet uh, but let's maybe look at ways of how can we teach you to cope with what you just went through and what your family have gone through and how mm. can you deal with that and how can you but the reality is we're not going to do that yeah, yeah. that's sad and do you think uh, your uh, does anxiety come from something is there a trigger for I mean obviously you you had to leave and go to the Lebanon for a while as a child and you as a, what, what age were you when you went to the Lebanon I was Le 13 you were 13 mm. and it was would you think there might have been a trigger there? Because it was a trigger. Yeah, yeah and yeah, I yeah. think to be fair, like I, I've, I speak quite openly to my parents about my anxiety and where we could think it came from and the nature nurture thing. And yeah. I, like as mum, we always have said I was a worrier as a child anyway, yeah. and I was very much attached to my mum. I'm a complete mummy's boy, still am. Yeah, I was very much attached to her, and I, like I love her very, very much. But the when I went to Israel, um, what happened was. I, oh, sorry, it was I mean, in Israel. Yeah. Israel, well, Lebanon. It was on the border. Yeah, yeah. Lebanon, and I remember saying, like in the book, like I, I used to get nosebleed when we drove past Kinigad. Like that was as far as we used yeah. to go. Maybe Clara Lara. I know. Mm -hmm. Funny thing is, like our school tours were Clara Lara and Dublin Zoo, and then I kept moved to Dublin. And I realised the schools went to South of France skiing on their school tours. <laughs> we got dragged to Dublin Zoo, uh, and like the reality was, I, I probably was at a very transitional part of my life. And I think a 13 year old, you've got to be very careful and keep your eye on 13 year olds because it's a very, it's a very progressive, fast moving period of time where mm. people change quite quickly as, as adult into essentially young adults. And then um, I, uh, that, that was a difficult time for me. And I, I remember just feeling constantly uneasy because there's lads walking around with Kalashnikovs around their shoulders and, and, and there was, constant helicopters going over, over our heads and warships in the bay and you're kind of looking at this coming from Mullingarra going I'm not used to this and then one mm. night there was um, there was a bomb scare uh, we were told to get into our bomb shelters um, mm. and I just remembered that that was the first night I experienced what I can only define as I say it was the time the switch went on and the switch never went off again um, and it was as if somebody put a concrete cavity block on my chest mm. and it was a nausea I'll never be able to describe it words and, and I just lay in bed just feel what is this what is happening to me and that was my first introduction to anxiety yeah and I think anxiety like it's a word you hear a lot again and people go I'm stressed I'm anxious stress and anxiety are not the same thing uh, they're married in some little way. A stress, anxiety is almost as a, a result of sus, uh, unsustainable stress, where you're under stress for a period of time. And finally, you know, you get to the point where you can't switch off. Um, mm. And that's when anxiety kicks in. And I think with stress, everybody, it's normal to be stressed and it's good to be stressed because you, you, you need to let your brain know every now and again, you can't, you can't have it your own way all the time. You know, you have to. But I think right. for me, it was, it was uncontrolled. Uh, and mm. it wasn't even stress that got me to that point. It was just worry. And I, I think one thing I'll say to people who suffer with anxiety, for me, I don't know if I can speak on behalf of everybody else, but my anxiety came out of love for others. I worry about other people constantly. Mm. Other people all the time. That is not something I, ever, I ever want to lose. Yeah. I'm a caring person. Um, the reality was I wasn't able to cope with the amount I cared for other people and, and mm. so never look at anxiety as a deeply negative thing God, yeah that's you really know? weird because I remember when I was young my mother uh, got sick and she died when I was 11 and I started uh, praying when before I went to sleep 
and uh, the amount of people I pray for in my family, then it started increasing, increasing mm. to everyone and the animals on the farm. And it's just yeah, this yeah. incredible, that just rings a bell. But that's there. a good thing, John. Yeah. You know, and yeah. this is the thing about people sitting in anxiety going, oh my God, this is so negative. And so mm. what's the only negative thing about anxiety is you haven't learned to control it yet mm. and you haven't learned to cope with it. And the other, I have a, un, and I will not be argued with in this point, and anyone who wants to argue with me, I'm happy to stand up on stage with them on it. Mm. People who deal with a mental health illness, uh, and I'm talking maybe, I'm talking from my case kind of a primary illness where I didn't, I never, I was never institutionalised. I was never, I never got to the point where you have more serious mental health illnesses mm. like schizophrenia. And for me, it was, uh, I believe, and I don't mean this in an egotistical way, I have an edge. I, I believe I have an edge and I believe other people who deal with this have an edge over others. Uh, mm. I believe it's a strength because once that resilience can be brought out and it takes time to get that resilience out of people, you realise that the days that you can't get out of bed and you can't eat and you can't look at the light and you can't, you can't look at your own mother because you feel guilty about how you feel. Mm. Those days are darker than anything else you're going to face or any other challenge you're going to face and any other issue that you have to overcome. And that's actually a really positive thing to look at because I, everything that's thrown at me now, I kind of look at it and go, this is grand, no bother. Compared and to what I've been through. Yeah, not even what I've because it's not mm. like I've been through anything traumatic and that's the thing. It's just those days. And the one thing I wanted to get across in the book was one of the compounding, absolutely compounding emotions that took over me was guilt. Because I knew I shouldn't feel this way. I knew I had, I had no reason to feel this way. And I was being, you know, you were reading these things about the starving kids in Africa and all these other perspective things that are thrown in your face. Mm. And you just want to shake yourself and go, why do I feel this way? Mm. And all the shaking in the world doesn't get rid of it. So then, it, then you add to the cocktail of emotion, you add guilt. And guilt is a horrific feeling. Um, and... And that was one of the hardest things for me. And, and, and it was because of that guilt and also the fact that stereotypically I wasn't the guy people would associate with uh, an issue like this. I was mm. the athlete, mm. the guy in school who no problem chatting around to lads. And I wasn't the quiet guy in the corner who we lazily label as the, the, the guy who might have an issue. Um, yeah. I wasn't that. And, and that's a stigma that's probably the most damaging because there's men, men out there, and I'm talking to men, it, that look at themselves and go, well, I don't fit into that box, so I definitely can't talk about it. I can't mm. put it out. And and when they don't do that, and the real sad statistic in Ireland, isn't this just the suicide rate, is the fact that most people who do take their life hasn't, have never looked for help. Mm. That's the saddest part. And the reason they haven't is because there's a big ignorant stigma stopping them doing it. And that has to be destroyed. Mm. And when you talk about the guilt, I think probably, even for me, because of the way you're feeling your relationships get destroyed and you feel guilty for that as well mm, because you probably treat people badly because in a way, do you know yeah, what I mean? Because you, you can't open so out, out to and, them and, and then the guilt accumulates. Well, the thing with my relationships, um, mm. I never treated anyone intentionally badly, uh, especially girls because I had three sisters who would have knocked me out of the house if I, if I ever was disrespectful to women. I've actually a, a very very strong respect for women uh, from because I was raised by three sisters and my mother yeah. my dad was never at home oh, yeah, I'm not saying that I'm just saying that no I know but the, the, mm. in terms of I did treat people badly mm. uh, and the, the reason being isn't because I was a bad person mm. I the one really important point to make about this is you cannot have and this isn't just for people who might struggle with mental health issues you can't have a relationship and don't kid yourself and don't pretend you do have a relationship if you haven't got 100% complete honesty in it. You can't. It's not a real relationship. It's a fake one. Mm -hmm. And if you're in a relationship with someone that you're not being honest with, then stop kidding yourself. And that's family members, loved ones, girlfriends, wives, husbands. Mm -hmm. A real relationship is built on nothing but honesty. And I was never honest with anyone. Not because I was going around being a, a bastard and cheating with people or, mm -hmm. you know, going out and getting hammered and falling in. And It was because I never told them the truth. Yeah. I, I never said, you know what? Those days that I disappear uh, for a day or two and don't ring you, I'm not off gallivanting. I'm I'm oh I'm turtle in a shell, you mm. know, and I'm trying to. And that's another thing we have to point out. The reason I used to do that and the reason a lot of people with issues. And I read a story about Bruce Springsteen who used to just get in his bike and cycle for four days and his wife wouldn't know where he is. Yeah, the really? reason people do that uh, from what I can make out and from the people I've spoken to is because of 
it's not because of selfishness. It's from the opposite of selfishness. It's from the complete opposite, opposite of selfishness. It's selflessness. They do not want other people to have to deal with it. Mm. They don't want other people who might be having a good day have to deal with it. Mm. So what do they do? They go, right, I'm going to just... I, well, what I did was I'm going to limit myself from, from bringing other people down. And that's how I thought. Mm. So I would just hide or I'd disappear. And that's the way I dealt with it. It wasn't because I was being ignorant. It wasn't because mm. I was... It was because I didn't want other people to suffer as well. And that's that's another example of people with mental health illnesses. And, and the perception that we see in the media and that's sickening and absolutely breaks my heart is that we sell it as such a weakness and we sell it as such a, a negative thing. We sell it as oh, people with mental health illnesses are even dangerous. You know, this is the stuff in the media that's destroying people in society. That German wings crash that we saw and the front page of whatever UK. And to, to be fair, the Irish media are quite good, to be honest, mm-hmm. and give them their due. But in the UK, they put the front headline that depression ca- caused this guy. Would you, as a matter of interest, Joe, would you put every physical illness into one box? Would you put cancer in the same box as MS? Would you put MS in the same box as as like a severe like autoimmune disease, HIV. Mm. No, you wouldn't. Mm. There's so many varying degrees of severity and physical illnesses and mental illness is no different. Mm. You cannot say the guy had depression and just say that's all it is and put it into a big box. There was a huge, there's so many elements to mental health. There's psychosis, schizophrenia, bipolar, clinical, there's eating disorders, there's OCD, there's, there's many different uh, yeah. areas of mental health illness and we have to stop just saying it was depression. And that headline and people who buy papers like that just let me I'll just let you know what you're doing think of the once again the 16 year old kid who's just dying to talk mm. and dying to just say something about what, what they're going through and they see that headline in the paper lying on their parents table mm. and they look at it and they go no I can't and then they go right back into their shell and then maybe do something even more permanent and dangerous. Right, that's yeah. what headlines like that do. Uh, that's how damaging they are. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's serving no purpose except basically putting more bricks in that stigma. And then um, mm-hmm. media people, media that do that should be absolutely ashamed of themselves because their mothers, their fathers, their sisters, their brothers could be going through something mm-hmm. and they wouldn't know about it. Mm-hmm. And they're rubbing their faces in it by putting headlines like that mm-hmm. uh, out into the mass media. And so before you were able to talk about your uh, panic attacks and things, was music an outlet? Was music Huge. an escape for you? Yeah, yeah. I used yeah. to sit in my room. Uh, my mum bought me a guitar when I think it was 14, an electric guitar mm. and an acoustic. And I had no interest in an acoustic. I just wanted an electric guitar. Mm. And I was into Metallica and all them at the time. But I remember I used to sit in my, my room and I had a tiny box room. I don't, it makes no sense that my parents put me in the smallest room in the house, yeah. from six foot two or something at that stage. Yeah. And I used to sit... I know this sounds ridiculous, but I would put on a Nirvana, I would put on Oasis, I put on anyone Green Day at the time, and I would play the guitar and pretend I was on stage playing the songs. Right, yeah. And it was a really nice way of getting me away from myself. Um, Mm -hmm. And the problem with that was when I was a 13 or 14 year old, that's what I did. But then my my panic attacks started happening in my bedroom and in my bed. uh, And I started to associate my bedroom and my bed with someplace I didn't want to be. Because I feared it and I feared every time that I went in there that I'd have a panic attack. Really? And what brought on then was sleep deprivation. I wouldn't sleep. Mm. I was an insomniac. I couldn't sleep for, for maybe an hour or two a night. But I'd go to school wired, like Jeez. not able to keep my eyes open. And teachers, Christian brothers looking at you going, this guy's a waster. And I'm not a waster. I just haven't slept in, in four days um, because I can't breathe at night. And, um, you know, maybe that's the question mm. you should be asking yourself. But, that you know, these are the things that I don't want me to come across every time I talk about mental health as a, mm. a negative thing because now that I've been allowed to deal with it now that I've let myself deal with it now that I shout it from the rooftops mm. I am the most liberated the most happiest the like genuinely happiest sincere to the core of my stomach mm. because I, I, I've got the monkey off my back It must be amazing because from reading the book you actually get anxious reading the book because <laughs> you're thinking, especially oh, say you're about to do something, so you're going off to Australia with the rugby team yeah, yeah, and I'm going, oh my God, how's he going to handle this? You yeah. know what I mean? It's like a thriller almost. Some people, <laughs> some people were saying to me reading it going, I didn't want to read it because I knew it would, it would bring out some demons. And, and then yeah, there's another thing yeah. and, and sometimes you have to, and I've worked a lot, a lot of people now over the last couple of years and I'm not a psychologist and I don't try to go out and divvy out advice and what to do because mm. I'm not qualified and I wouldn't do that. But one thing I've noticed is is some people have to be broken down before they're rebuilt. 
Mm. Uh, and that's a frightening thing for some people to have to do. So sometimes people go, I can't talk about that because if I talk about that, it's going to open things up and I'm going to get really upset mm. and I'm going to be anxious. And so I said, you need to, you, if you're going to, if you're going to get, if you're going to go on the road to recovery, mm. you have to let yourself be open. And what I mean by that is, you know, I've, I've been in situations where, especially grief, Grief is a prime example where, where people go, I don't want to talk about it because it upsets me. And mm. I says, yeah, but you haven't dealt with this. Uh, so, yes, we're going to have to talk about. And grief isn't about I've lost my, my father. Mm. Grief is about your relationship with your father, the past with your father. Mm. Everything about that's going to be part of your grief, grieving process. Mm. And people in Ireland don't know how to grieve. Our, our protocol for grief is to go and get shit-faced and get drunk and mm. repress and repress and repress. But pain will come out in, in some vein or some, mm. some other. So you're better off letting pain come out in a controlled way where you're mm. able to control it. And it's not you going on a rampage for two weeks and then spending three weeks in a deep hole because you're so depressed. Mm. So I think and it's not just, Joe, like you look at, right, it's it's we are just really 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 bad at being emotional mm. and you look at i was watching the irish french rugby game in the world cup and watching men ball in a pub but they wouldn't cry at their dad's funeral mm. because they don't want to show that weakness but mm. the ball if feckin you know rob carney goes over the line for a try in against france and they'll hug people and we're great at that but no when it comes to real emotion we're you know and that's, that's very that's hard stuff, yeah you know I mean, I, in my situation, I saw my father have a mental breakdown when, when his wife died, when my mother died. And so when I, and it was very uh, kind of hard to see that. So when I started feeling panic attacks, I tried to control it. I didn't want to end up like my father. You know, yeah. you know that kind of thing where you try and go, no, uh, I don't want to end up kind and, of losing and Even it. though you know that's wrong, you know, and, and <laughs> because you're told as well that, you know, you're Joe and you're funny and you're 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 creative and you're artistic and this and that. You've mm. you know, you're told that you 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 we're told to be a certain way and, and it's the reality is and, and the really positive thing and I keep reinforcing this, if you're let deal with this and mm. if you came out and you went, you know what, I've had a, a difficult couple of years, my mum passed away, my dad's not dealing with it well, so therefore I'm not dealing with it very well because the two most important people in my life are one of them is not there and my dad if you mm. had said that and allowed to say that and people were able to go right how are we going to deal with this Joe mm. uh, what are the strategies we're going to put in place are we going to be able to fix it overnight no of course we're not but we can give you like the, the problem being is often the stuff that might fix it for you quickly is not the stuff that's sustainable so for me like I speak about mental fitness I speak about how we as people and society have to start investing in our minds so we're able to cope with grief and we're able to cope with difficult mm. situations and crisis but the reality is none of us do it. I could be in a room with 300 people and I would say, who actively invests in their mind? Maybe five people would say it. Mm -hmm. And some people are embarrassed to say it. So our reality is go get your gym memberships if you want. Brilliant. Go spend 200 quid in a dinner, overpriced dinner in Dublin City Centre. Go do all these things and just believe that they're fundamentally what make you happy. What makes you cope is your mind. Your mind is the motherboard. It calls all the shots. You can do whatever the feck you want outside that. It doesn't make a difference if the mind isn't strong. Mm. So invest in it. Uh, yes, I, I was diagnosed with clinical depression and general anxiety disorder. Yes, I'll deal with that for the rest of my life. But I've now got the coping strategies and I'm mentally fit enough to deal with it. Uh, mm. And I'm able to go when those days come in. My mantra has changed from why, why me? Why again? Why, why are you doing this to me? To this will pass. This will pass mm. like a bad flu. So you let it, you know. Go over here. Let it happen. Don't uh, fear it. Yeah. Don't. Yeah. The, the, it's the constant fear of those days that freak me. Used to yeah. freak me out. Well, actually, yeah. I think panic attacks is like snowball effect. So y you get a panic attack and you go, "What, what was that?" Mm. And then you're afraid to get another one, and the fear of getting another one brings another one on. I, so it's, it's like it's it's, it's, it's an it's, absolute joke. Like, it's hilarious. And you know <laughs> yeah, how your yeah, mind yeah. works. And I get another prime example. How my my mind would would work maybe in my 20s say for example mm. until I started doing CBT and addressed my thoughts and how I thought you're, you're checking into a lovely hotel for a weekend away with your girlfriend everyone's mm. like oh it's great to get away you must be very delighted to get a couple of days away you're busy and you're like yeah yeah it's great whatever and you get to the hotel you check in and sir you're on the fifth floor what does my brain do straight away goes I'm going to burn on a fire tonight that's the first thing really? my brain and that's how my anxiety used to work and I would I would get into the room 
I would look out the window. I'd look, if, could I survive if I jumped that? And then I'd go, no, I couldn't. I better, is there a pole there I can collect? No, there isn't. Is that duvet strong enough? To, and this is, this is what I'm thinking. This is what's going on in my head privately. And then I get into bed and I go, I'm going to have to go out into the corridor and look for the emergency exit to see how we're going to get out of here because there's going to be a fire. Jeez. What happens when your brain is thinking like that? Basically, your heart rate increases. Mm. You, you know, you get uneasy. You start sweating. You, you start physiologically responding to what's going on in your head. Mm. And then what happens? Bang, panic attack. You, I basically talk myself into them. Mm. So now what I, what I would do from learning, from, from doing CBT for so many years, I'd check in. I would go fifth floor, sir, and I'd go, Brant, no bother. And I'd, walk, I'd go upstairs. And if I did get that thought, geez, what if there's a fire? I am able to label it and go, that's an anxious thought. What's, what do we do with an anxious thought? You fuck it in a bin. Mm. You put it aside and you don't use it. And then you, you, you basically replace that anxious thought with a positive kind of, a, you know, a, pos- a positive thought, not in a kind of a fake way, but you just think to yourself, isn't it great? I'm away for you. Mm. And does that work overnight? No, that is, you need to get in the habit of doing that and catching mm. your thoughts and actually addressing them and labeling them and realizing that most of your thoughts are anxious or depressed. Mm. And, and when you can do that, that's one part of the building, building block. And then I looked at how do I actually calm my brain down for, for even for 15 minutes a day? How do I stop it? Just let it just be completely and utterly defunct. Mm. How do I do that? And that was through meditation. I started meditating and then what happened? I started hyperventilating because the minute I concentrated on my breathing, I fucking had a panic attack because I had such a hostile relationship with my breath. So here I went going, oh, this meditation stuff doesn't work. And then I went, well, hold on, it's been around a long time. So there's probably there's probably other things I can do. And then I, I looked at a thing called body scanning, which is mm. where you concentrate on body parts. And, mm. and I started doing that. And I went, geez, that's really good. And then after about six months of doing that, I got back to meditation where I was actually very good at. It. And then I started with three minutes a day. And now I'm up to maybe 90 minutes a day. Really? Where yeah. I can just, if I have 90 minutes where I know in the evening, I won't sit in Moshi Sanders in Coronation Street. I will sit down and I will try to wash my brain. And that's all it is. Wash mm. your brain. You know, and let the thoughts come in, mm. let them leave. And what I'm trying to say is that took me years. And anyone who goes down going, I want, I want to do meditation, but I want to be a Buddha after fucking two days of it, you won't be. It takes months and months and months. And I never ask anyone to do a marathon on two days training. Mm. Give yourself time. Invest in it. There's an app called Headspace. I Headspace, just, yeah. yeah. So And that helps you to... Uh, I've only downloaded it last night, so I haven't had a look at it. Headspace but is it, amazing. It helps you yeah. to take 10 minutes, start with 10 minutes. And it also, and, it, it, it slowly lets you step into meditation right, and yeah. mindfulness. And there's mindfulness. The problem is everywhere you look now, there's a mindfulness, something mindfulness, something mindfulness. Do mm. this, try this. Don't try to be taught. Try to really sit down and... One thing with my recovery and my ultimate kind of combination of stuff, I, I wasn't spoon fed. Mm. There's no psychologist in this world that's going to sit down and tell you exactly what you need to do as a person. Mm. You need to, number one, create an environment where getting help and being accepting yourself. Mm. Uh, create that environment. And what I mean by that is I, 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 I was surrounded by a lot of toxicity, toxic people mm. and toxic environments that didn't allow me kind of look for the proper help. Mm. So I actually, one of my first border calls was to say to a lot of people, I'm sorry that I can no longer be around you anymore. Or also, I'm sorry that, I, 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 like, will you come to this thing tonight? No, I won't. It makes me feel uneasy. And people go, well, you can't do it. It's part of your job. I'm like, no, it's not. It's part of my job to say I have to go to an event that I don't feel, I don't feel happy mm. at and I don't feel easy at. So what I, I started doing was being positively selfish. Mm. And that's how I looked at it. And when I did that, I was able to look at all these other elements of stuff. It took me so long and I'm still finding out and I'm still zoning in on how to how to be better at meditation. I'm still going to counselling mm. uh, very sporadically now because I don't need it as much. Uh, I've, you know, people always ask me about medication, you know, and the one thing we have to be really careful with medication because people are waiting to be offended in Ireland and waiting to jump down your throat and say, oh, you know, my doctor just shoved antidepressants down my god when I walked in and this, that and the other. I'm not saying anything for or anything against medication. I'm just telling you what I did. Um, I abused and self-medicated on drugs that I shouldn't have abused, like benzodiazepines and sleeping pills. And I was, yeah, I was I amazed was, reading the book that yeah. you could get them without a prescription. Sure, you can get you, them. You, I mean, if you can go around and get class A illegal drugs, you can get anything you want. Really? You know, I think, you know, I think that even when my mum was like, how easy was it? And I had a, remember yeah. at that time in London, I had a doctor in Dublin, doctor in Mullingar, doctor in, 
you know, I was playing it. I really? was, I wasn't, you know, and it wasn't, it was no doctor's fault. It was my fault. And I have to take responsibility for my own actions because I knew I was abusing this drug and I knew I was becoming dependent on it. And we have another funny, not funny, but actually really not funny um, perception of addiction uh, in Ireland. We, we assume addiction is only associated with oh, like heroin and that kind of thing. People who can't, yeah. who are homeless. And mm. I was a drug addict, but I was mm. functioning. Uh, so therefore, in the eyes of society, I didn't have an addiction. So I think we have to, anyone, addiction can sneak up on anybody. Uh, and mine snuck up on me like a little, like a little cute dog that I didn't knew was coming. Uh, until the point coming, I was on a train to Manchester to do, to do a job. Mm. And I realized I left my sleeping pills in London and I, mm. I had a meltdown. And I knew I was in trouble. And I, I remember getting to Manchester about eight o'clock at night and going I need to find where I can get these I have to go there's got to be a chemist that'll give me something Yeah. and nobody couldn't get anything so what did I do I drank myself asleep so these are the things that you know that I, I, I went through uh, it's with my amazing mental health. you went through all this but you were being very well outwardly anyway very successful you know you were a professional rugby player mm. which is you know that's pretty amazing yeah, you have to ask you, I have to keep asking myself how successful I could have been if if I wasn't, I suppose, dealing. And I yeah. never. And the only thing I want to get across is I know I'm not using my mental, my mental illness and my anxiety as an excuse for why maybe I didn't succeed further in certain things. I was. There's two things that probably caused. I'm a perfectionist, and perfectionism yeah. isn't a good thing. It's not a good thing. It's unhealthy. Uh, the ability. The ability, people might go, oh, that's not true. Being perfe- perfectionist, no, it's not. It's not good for your head. You know, you gotta be, you gotta have self compassion for yourself. You gotta, you gotta be able to love yourself, and you gotta be able to say, right, maybe we have this f- absolutely draconian fear of failure. We're constantly fear, fearing failure, and we've been yeah. bred that way, and we've been bred that this is the way you need to be. I'm 35 now, John, but uh-huh. every, by, by the time you're 35, you have to have a mortgage, and you have to have at least two kids, mm. or else you're not honouring what society thinks you should be. And the, all these things are, put a lot of pressure but on people. What about, you know, the people who succeed, like, uh, for example, Mourinho, who seems to be having a meltdown. Yeah, now. he is. Do you think there's people like that we shouldn't be looking up to? You know what I mean? Because the people who hate failure, and that's how their whole career is, like, based on that. I, I think or, there's, I think the most successful people I know absolutely and 100% love failure. They're just really good at coming back from it. And I've always been told okay. never define a person by failure, define them how they come back from failure. That's really, mm. really the ultimate, the ultimate thing you can say. On it. And, and the reality is no one goes, I don't sets out to fail, but you put yourself under that much pressure. I met a guy recently in uh, Mental Health Week in Galway University mm. and he was, he his enti- entire mental health, obviously there was a, a probably an underlying issue there anyway but his entire kind of catalyst that brought on all his problems was his absolute need to do well in his exams mm. his absolute 100% blinding ambition need to do well in exams and the problem is when you put yourself under that pressure and you set those targets and you have so much fear of failure the fact is when it happens you realise it's devastating because mm. you, you've, you've put all your eggs in one basket and you've You've built yourself up to this. And, and he, what he didn't need at the time was like some guy coming on. There's more to life than exams. You know, you're leaving cert. Kids don't need to hear that. Mm. But they need to start being brought up where failure isn't something that we, we use as a tool to bat, beat people with. And I mean, I'd be honest, like you look at my, my case, I set targets and goals for certain parts of my career. One of my targets and goals was to play, in interna- play internationally for Ireland. And uh, Did I fail? I don't know. I, 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 I didn't reach the target I set for myself. Does that mean I'm a failure? I don't think it does. In terms of music, do you, the do blizzard... You, do you, sorry, do you think about that and say if you hadn't had issues with mental health that you that would have... No, because no. I actually didn't... If I'm being honest, at the time, I was losing interest in, in the sport itself. Okay. Uh, I'm a Gaelic player at heart, and I think mm. that'll never leave me. I, I, was, I love Gaelic. I love, I love the mm. simplicity of Gaelic. Mm. Um, but when it came to music... Mm. The blizzards, like we we set out first and foremost, goes we need a record deal to make a record. That was our first our first goal. We got that. We made a record. We then said, if it does record, we'll do another record, and we'll see if we can and bring this further. And trying to try to get out, like every band puts pressure on themselves to get out of Ireland, see if we can break the UK or break America or do all this. And this is the, these are the realistic targets you set. Mm. Did the blizzards do that? No, we didn't. Did we try? Yes, we did. We went to the UK. We signed to a UK label. We did the UK tours. We did all the thing. Did it work? It didn't. Uh, are we failures? I don't know. 
you see, these are the things. And did, did that hit me? It absolutely knocked me on my arse. And I've refused to do that to myself anymore. I've refused to define what success is because when you keep defining success, mm. you should you should set goals, absolutely mm. set goals and, and, and try to achieve them. But try to control what you control. Did I control whether the UK loved the blizzards? No, I didn't. But did I think I did? Yeah, I did. And I put myself under intense pressure and I hated Radio 1 because they didn't play our song. And God, they're all dickheads in there I said no they're not dickheads they just didn't like the music but uh, how do you feel now about like that's the way I react to things as well like if I don't get on something I I don't I won't watch the program on TV that's human instinct though Joe that's totally fine yeah you know that's human (laughs) and we're all we're all nodding our head going yeah there's plenty of shows we could name on that but yeah it's it's up to you as an individual to react to that. How do you feel like as as for me right now, I've just realized by reacting massively negatively to to stuff I don't control, it has hasn't served me okay. very well in, in my in in my life. And I and that's another that's one of the but, things. But I think sometimes you I, I would find it I would find it hard to uh, lose that I, I would think to myself, Well, if I don't have that really heavy disappointment then I won't be driven, if you know what I mean. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think, but that's because you've been taught to think that way. Yeah, that's how we've yeah. been bred. We've been bred like uh, robots. Think that way. If you don't succeed, you're going to be massively disappointed. And Jesus, will he come back from it? Maybe he won't. Or maybe she won't. For me, th- yeah. I'm not saying, and I don't want to come across like you shouldn't set targets and absolutely militantly go at them. Mm. I am seriously, dangerously competitive. Mm. I'm very, very, very competitive. And I'll go at something and I will put every last cell of my body into it. Mm. If it doesn't happen, the difference being is my reaction has changed from, oh, my God, this has been a worthless time. I'm sick of this crap. I'm never doing it again to, right, how am I coming back from this one? What's my next step? What's my next goal? Right, and, yeah. and that, don't get me wrong, I used to say that to myself pretending I meant it and I didn't mean it. And I just said it just because I was, it was the positive thing. It was the Oprah Winfrey thing to say. But now I actually say it so often I've got into a habit of it that that's, that's how I think. And I've set myself goals this year. Uh, like one of my goals, one of my dreams, I think, is is to be part of a, a group of people that helps get this in, gets mental fitness into mm. our education system. But the fact is, I don't have control over that. Mm. Uh, I what I control is the passion and drive and vision with these other people to do it, mm. uh, to to ho- ultimately design the best program that would work. But I don't control whether the Minister of Education is going to turn on and go, right, we're going to do this. So you can't expect that to happen. It's like, I think no. Des Bishop said he was in here, he said, uh, having expectations leads to future disappointments. So It does. And yeah. I, I, I think it's important for yeah. fathers and mothers maybe listening to this going, but mm-hmm. I want to instill a level of, of mm-hmm. kind of, you know, I want ambition in my child. That's brilliant. Mm-hmm. Ambition is great. But stop confusing ambition with mm-hmm. fear of failure. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're different things. The need to achieve this all the time. Yeah. Because so, every dad wants to get in the pub and go, that's my son. Yeah. That's my daughter, you know, and be proud. And that's brilliant. And I really love that. And it's something I promote heavily. But at the, ex- at the expense of a child's mental health and emotional well-being, absolutely not. If you're putting your child under that much pressure and instilling a need in them to absolutely succeed at everything they do, you're not, you're not, you're not, you're not setting up a realistic life for them. Mm. You aren't. Even yeah. the most successful people in the world constantly, like I, 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 even today, I bet you Richard Branson fails three or four times or something. Mm. You know, and that's the way you look at entrepreneurs, you look at athletes. I remember Brian O'Driscoll. I'll show oh, yeah, you a about, really good example of Brian O'Driscoll. Failing better. Failing better. We mm, mm. Yeah, without doubt, the best rugby player we've ever produced. Yeah. I, I was lucky enough to train and play with Brian O'Driscoll. Mm. And I remember one day on a Wednesday evening, uh, him getting a bollocking uh, after a game from the coaches saying he, he did three or four really bad kicks in that game. Yeah. Uh, simple kicks, but he, he, he messed them up. And the coach said it wasn't good enough at your level, blah, blah, blah. And I remember sitting in the meeting going, Jesus, he must be, he must be really upset with that. Like, he's been completely going now. He's the best player in the world here. And, and what did Brian O'Driscoll do that evening after training in the pissing rain when we all went in to have our bats and, our, and sit, sit at home? He stayed out on the pitch for an hour and a half practicing that one kick. Uh. That one kick. And he goes, yes, I failed at it. Next time, I've learned from my failure. And next time, hopefully it won't happen again. Did it ever happen again? It didn't. I never seen him make the same mistake again. Mm. So these are the things that his his attitude towards being bollocked out of it and f- perhaps failing with that particular te- technique during a game. Mm. His attitude wasn't to go, oh my god, I failed. It was like, let's not fail again. And mm. that's our mates. Let's 
perhaps limit the chance of my failure again. And that's that's what makes amazing people at what they do. Mm-hmm. Mental fitness, not because, you know, not that does that make Brian somebody who is cool with failure? No, it doesn't. It makes somebody who's absolutely wants to be the best at what he wants to be, but recognizes that it's not as easy as going. You're invincible. Yeah, yeah. You know, and he's not invincible. Well, Brian made a lot of had a lot of bad games. Right, and Paul McCartney and John Lennon wrote a lot of shit songs in their lives. Mm. Are they the greatest songwriters, pop writers of all time? Yes, they are. Yeah, yeah. Oh, actually, funny. You know Thomas Walsh? I do. Uh, oh, gosh. He was in here, I think I'm putting it out in a couple... In, One of my favourite Irish writers. Right, OK. And he's a great songwriter. Now, he actually brought you up in the conversation when he, he slagged off a few bands like Codeline uh, and a few people like that. Um, and he, he said... He doesn't slag off people. I've never heard Thomas slag well, off Well, he's... I love his face. Kind of... Uh, he's no, passionate. Yeah, he, he, he didn't slag them off. Sorry, um... I don't know what he was talking about. Anyway, but he did say he, he wishes you got back to music. Uh, well, that's now, he mustn't consider the voice music, sorry. Yeah, no, and the, the one thing I consider, just sort of make a point and people go, oh, the voice, yeah. this, that, and the other, and what I do. I have a, a quite a nice way of looking at what I do in the voice. And what even when I look at the X Factor and you look at Jedward and people like that, I associate that with the entertainment industry. Mm. That's the entertainment industry. Um, where I come from is the music industry, uh, the, the garage bands, the being creative in a group with a group of three or four people who you grew up with. That to me was the music, doing the toilet tours and the transit fans, mm. smelling a piss and fucking eating sausage, chicken fillet rolls for your, your, your diet three times a day. Yeah. And that was for me what I associate. But that mean that, that I shouldn't be allowed going and be part of the entertainment industry. And is the entertainment mm. industry wrecking the music industry? No, the music industry wrecked the music industry. You know, we can't, we can't be looking around and going, it's the X Factor's fault. The fact is the internet obviously had a compounding huge issue and we weren't ready for it. Um, but that's still what's happening in the music industry now is really exciting because we're yeah. going back to development. We're developing talent, which we never did five years ago. We were like, did it work? No, back off, next one in. You look at Hosier. I know because I've seen his development. I've seen it over six, six years. I've seen Caroline as manager and, mm. and the importance of a good manager. I've seen her develop that guy from someone who was sending, and he had sent demos to us in London a couple of times. I remember listening to it. Mm. The first moment I listened to it, I meant that guy is is the, probably one of the greatest vocalists I've heard in a long time. Yeah. Are the songs there? Nope. And then I didn't hear about him, heard him play an oxygen gig and then heard a little bit about him, used to email him how he's getting on and then I heard Take Me to Church and I went, mm. five years later, that's how long it took him to find a sound that he was mm. happy with, that honoured his vision. Yeah. And that's development. That's starting to happen again in the music industry. But, well, uh, yeah, but isn't it, isn't it, how can you make money? You're not going to sell, uh, you're not going to sell records, are you? Because people can, my son, he's 17, he, he can hear anything on YouTube or he doesn't have to pay for anything. Yeah, and I think you he can't fight that. And I think yeah. what the, the real, the real sad part of the industry, right now, and, I, and I, I mean, I understand the business perspective because I, you know, I, I, I suppose on one hand, I worked, I worked in the industry as a writer as well, and I understand, mm. and I sit with the labels and I try to figure out what's going on in their heads. Yeah. When a label has been told they're making no revenue from album sales, what are the label going to have to do if they're investing the actual initial money into making a record? They're going to go, well, we're going to have to get it somewhere. Mm. And where is that they're going to get? The real issue, the real issue is the major multinationals giving minimal income for streaming, minimum money. You look at the, the mm. Googles and the YouTubes, like you look at, like, the 300 million hits that I don't know Bieber gets on, on YouTube or whatever it is and I mean I'll give you an example I remember getting my Spotify um, uh, for a single I wrote years ago called Can't Stay Young Forever and it was pretty successful it was number yeah. one airplay mm-hmm. in Ireland and you know I never had a number one airplay before in my life and mm-hmm. um, and I was like jeez that might be I might actually see some money out of yeah. this and then I got my Spotify thing and I actually sent the cheque back to them so I'd wipe your arse with it lads yeah. that's embarrassing to me it's embarrassing to the label it's embarrassing to everyone so the real issue mightn't be that yes the labels are going to go after merchandise they're going to go after touring revenue because they need mm. to try and get some money back from their investment so the 360 deals we're seeing are they ideal absolutely not and I don't really agree with them but I can see the label's point of view to be honest mm. but the real issue is, is is the amount the bands are getting back but this all mm. started with me getting back into into music uh, I'll tell you exactly why I didn't and you've been through this yourself no doubt is mm. sometimes you lose interest mm. and you lose that passion and drive for it and you have to park it for a while and you have to believe that if you can park it you can come back to it yeah. and with the blizzards for example these are my friends these are guys I grew up with I went to school with I was babysitted a bit when I was a kid I remember when 
when I realised for a couple of reasons that we weren't going where we wanted to go we wanted progress that's what we were looking for and we were setting goals and we had done well in Ireland and it was going well uh, and we just signed with Ireland in the UK but I knew that deal in Ireland was a sympathy signing I knew it I knew it I felt it my gut was saying this isn't right a sympathy signing yeah it was like we, you know they're done well in Ireland and if we if we take the record here we still own the record so and we'll put it out in like a digital platform right. but we won't put and I, I remember the first question I asked Ireland I was like what's the marketing budget for this and they were because everyone always goes what's your advance what's your advance mm-hmm. I went no no what's the marketing budget because what are you putting behind this what's your belief in this and then I realised there was no belief, really. Yeah. And I remember turning to the lads going, I think, I think we're getting to the point that if we keep going, we'll resent each other as people. Mm-hmm. And that's the last thing I want to do because I have so much respect for them. And mm-hmm. so we said it and we said, listen, if, if this isn't the way, isn't the deal we think it is, our last gig is going to be in the, in the Olympia. Um, and we did it. And the, the fact that we were honest with each other mm-hmm. and we were respectful to each other is the fact that now I'm sitting back in a studio with them. Yeah, and right, okay. being creative with them cool, cool. Uh, with no negativity in it. Mm-hmm. We were very open. And I said, when that drive and passion comes back, lads, let me know. And about a year ago, Deck, the drummer, went, I'm feeling it again. Yeah. Uh, and for the right reasons, not because, jeez, mm-hmm. I'd love to get out and gig again. If we do it again, I'm not going out and gigging. I'm writing a record. That's priority. Write a record. Write a record you can stand by. I never felt we were a two album band. I think I think we have more mm. in us. So you're writing now, are you? Yeah, we're writing. We're um, writing. That's all we're doing. No expectations. Yeah, we're not putting our hands out looking for a deal. We're not wondering whether radio we're going to play. What we're going to do. The beauty of what we're doing now is there's no expectation. Mm. There's no pressure, and we're allowed to be creative. And that's actually letting us be really creative again. Mm. You know, I'm not thinking. The one thing I would always say to a band or an artist or a singer. If you can, for as long as you can, try and maintain that rawness that made you do it in the first place. Mm. If you can do that, uh, which isn't easy, if you can, if you can protect yourself from the industry, and have a good manager that does it, and just lets you be raw and lets you be the, the person why you're there in the first place, that will serve you very, very well. But mm. I was, I'm the first person to say I got poisoned and, and kind of tainted by what I wanted others to like. And mm. that's when I knew it was over. And when I did, and I can safely say my first solo record, three or four biggest hits I've ever written in terms of in terms of Irish radio play. I didn't write that record with the right intentions. I didn't. Um, and I, I mean, I'm I'm sometimes piss people off the fact that I'm I'm me, they want to give me meaty answers and be honest. Yeah. And some guy might pull that story and say Resi hated his first record. No, I didn't hate it. I just got, I got. I got manipulated and I allowed myself to be manipulated to, to be a person that I really wasn't. Yeah. Uh, and that's why I loved the blizzards because we, we never let that happen. Uh, and, and that's why we stopped because we saw it was going that way. We were going, you have to wear this. Oh, we're doing a photo shoot. You have a stylist. You have to wear this. And I was looking at the lads going, oh, we're not comfortable in this. God, yeah. And I'm like, no, let's not, not let us go down this road. Yeah. And if it means that we have to park it, we park it with dignity. And that's yeah. what we did. I mean, Kathy Davy, I was talking to her, and she had the same pressures on her. You know, Kathy Davy. Yeah, yeah, I know. Yeah, she, the, to dress up in a certain way, and you know, that, it's Jesus. You know, it is yeah, part of the industry, yeah. and you, when you're in it, you got it. You know, from 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 bloody day one of the music industry, that was part of it, and it's okay, yeah. and it's absolutely fine that that's part of it. But it's a part of me as an individual. Yeah. I, like when I look at my music career with the Blizzards, I, I kind of really start. It makes more sense to me about my journey and what, what I've gone on. I, like, I spend so much time repressing my own identity all the yeah. time, uh, trying not to be, not to let anyone see what was going on in my head or what I was dealing with. And I got tired of doing that. I got really fatigued and, and yeah. burnt out from constantly disguising myself. And then the only time I felt I didn't have to do it was when I was a musician. I was on stage because I became a different person. Yeah. And people think that's a cliche, but I did. I actually, when I was on stage... I, I was able to release You were more it. you I wasn't than you were off myself stage. anymore. And yeah. I was able to scream in a mic because that's how I felt. And, yeah. and the same when I played sport. So. And do you think, actually, do you think actually that you, you're, what you were struggling with almost has driven you as well as being a negative thing? It's, mm, it's put not, you my, into music and put, made you. But people as say well, to me, you know what I mean? do you want to, you know, do you know, do you know the word, word I find very uh, amusing is the word the, uh, cure? Mm. So you want to be cured. I never want to be cured of this. This has allowed mm. me to achieve many things. Mm. It's allowed, and it's going to allow me to do things now. It's going to allow me to push myself because I know how to deal with it now. Mm. Um, it, it allowed me to achieve things in the past for the wrong reasons because, I, like, in terms of music, and here's why uh, I felt I could outrun it. 
I felt I could mm. I could keep running and running away and the next thing that came around the corner would make it go away. Mm. And you think about that logically and it makes it, I actually laugh how stupid I was because do you think by having a physical disability or physical illness, do you think by doing something new or different or going somewhere new that, that it's going to go away? Mm. It's not. And that's how mental health, Ill, mental illness works. Mm. You can't outrun it. You got to. And that's ultimately in the book when you look at it is where, where my life changed is when one night I turned around and went, right, I'm naming you because I'm competitive and mm. I have somebody who's competitive and I'm going to name you Jeffrey mm. and I'm going to learn to engage with you now and I'm going mm. to learn to not run away from you I'm going to meet you halfway mm. are we going to beat the shit out of each other in a couple of days oh, yes we are mm. and only then uh, was I that was after you did a live voice Jesus yeah, Christ that was, reading that is just unbelievable going out live and you're going through such turmoil and it was, trying to get through it that day was God I, I, I don't know, like, it's hard to say you know, the, the hardest day of my life or the, the day that, it's like, the day I will remember on my deathbed yeah. is, that, is that particular moment Jeez. and that, I remember being on the floor and my ears were ringing and before you went do you know out. when you laugh a lot and you, you know it sounds complete, complete and utter polar mm. opposite when you laugh so much you can't stand up with the, you're, you're, you're almost yeah. void of any energy because you're laughing so hard that's what I felt like I, I jelly legs I actually felt yeah sorry, I felt I felt absolutely like I like, just broke down and mm, I couldn't mm. I couldn't get up um, I was trying to catch my breath I was trying oh, to catch my breath and I was trying to catch my breath and I knew like the last thing that was going on in my head yeah. is live television at that point I and and that's that's when I, I that's what I call survival mode. That's all that was. And I remember standing up, and I I was in floods of tears. I was mm. I was bawling because my eyes were bloodshot red, and I knew that this was it. And I didn't want this the way to happen. I didn't want this the way of people to find out. You yeah. know. Um, yeah. So I started praying to mm. my grandparents. I'm not religious, but I, mm. I prayed to them, and I just said, please, 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 get me through this ninety minutes. Yeah. Uh, and that type of panic attack, and I've had. I did, I've never had one as severe as that. But those types of panic attacks for me were absolutely outrageously physical as well. I'd be sore. My neck would be sore. Yeah. My, my head would be pounding. And mm. It was a very physical thing as well. And I'd had them in the past and I, and I knew it sometimes takes a week or two to actually come back to, your, to yourself after mm. one like that. And I had six minutes. That's, you know, that's ultimately, I was on live television in six minutes with a stage mm. manager thumping down my door. Holy shit. And I just remember walking up and there's no way nobody didn't notice me shaking. Um, and I, I got outside the stage and my, my singers were there looking for their last words of advice. And like I was, I don't even know what I said to them. I, I don't know how I got through it. And I walked out on stage and when they announced my name and they put the spotlight on me, it was like somebody got boiling hot water and poured it in my head. And I started singing two songs in my head that night constantly and that was that was my coping strategy at that point was I sang Martha by Tom Waits because right, yeah. I knew all the words to it and I just kept singing the words in my head and that kind of calmed me down slightly and then I sang that that, that 90s dance classic Sunshine Dario G some yeah. people might know it it's like African chanting and I was sitting there just replaying it in my head Sunshine yeah, yeah. One. <laughs> and I just I ran out the door when it was over yeah when that was over, um, I ran. I got. I went up to Shay, our driver, and I said, I, uh, "I'm not feeling well. Can you just get me back to the hotel?" God. And I got back to the hotel, and that's when everything changed. That's right. when Jeffrey. That's when Jeffrey was you born. You named it Jeffrey. And I put on a piece of paper that night because I knew I wouldn't sleep. And I put two pieces of paper. Uh, everything I think Jeffrey loves, everything I know he hates, and in the middle, everything that I could do. Because at that point, I'd gone to counselling in London a few mm. times, mm. and I remember walking and looking at my counsellor, going, "Fix me." After 10 minutes, who, mm. the, who I think I am, okay, yeah, you know, yeah, and, that, yeah. and I said in the middle, I wrote all these different things that I had heard are very, very good for this. Mm. And I said to you, I promise you, Rezi and Jeffrey, that mm. I'm going to give them all their fair care, share of time and I'm going to dedicate and motivate myself to do them all and give mm. them, you know, give them the respect that, that they're due. Things mm. like my mindfulness, mm. meditation, diet, exercise. Mm. And people think that for me, I go around saying, oh, exercise is that exercise was not the holy grail for me in any capacity exercise is a part of my mm. of my coping strategy just a part mm. is it an effective part absolutely but what exercise is great for me it allows me to take on challenges mm. uh, and what I found the most the most uh, the best payback for me mentally is when I overcome challenges yeah. I, I get a real buzz and so what I do is I set myself like targets like my first target was an open water sea swim and I have massive phobia of water and fish 
I just hate right. them. And I set this target that I'm going to do an open water sea swim. And I said, the minute I hit enter, I knew that competitive edge would kick in. And when I overcame that, and I did that, that eight weeks later, the, the compassion I had for myself was something you'll never be able to measure. And there's no drug that you'll be able to take to let yourself have that kind of compassion for yourself. Mm. I was very proud of myself. Um, and that had a huge impact on me. So mm. exercise, I need to make very clear, uh, I would never sell as the, that's what you got to do. It can help. Yeah. No doubt it can help. And there's reasons it can help. But you, the biggest support you're going to get, and I've just done a documentary called Iron Mind, where we have four people with their own varying degrees of mental health issues and we, ma- we train them to do a half Ironman uh, triathlon. That was a small part of it, that race. That was just a focus to have. The whole key to this whole documentary was the journey they went on. Them exposing where, where, where their issues are, us helping them overcome those issues. And w- without doubt, I can stand by this and say, and I'm not a psychologist, but the most... The, the most effective therapy that they got throughout that whole six month process wasn't exercise, wasn't CBT wasn't counselling, wasn't meditation it was social support it was peer to peer social support that ability to just text each other as a group, we had a WhatsApp group mm. and actually be unbelievably honest and going I am absolutely, I'm in a really hard place today, I don't know what I'm going to do mm. and have three people going I actually relate to you completely, understand that if there's anything you can do, talk, we'll drive up to you even mm. And to see the support that gave them shows you how damaging the stigma is. If every, everybody could have that type of conversation with the mother, the father, the sisters, the brothers, the, the colleagues, if you could have that open conversation in the same way that when you walk into work and you have a snotty nose, you're, you're well able to tell everybody about it and blow your nose and sneeze and go, oh, I'm dying of a cold. Mm. But if we could get to that level of going, you know, I feel uneasy today or I had a tough night last night and mm. the people beside you are not going, oh, what a weirdo. Mm. Jeez, you know, yeah, yeah. If we can get there. Mm. Uh, we're going to we're going to change attitudes in Ireland, and mm. you you know, and we all know how difficult it is to change attitudes yeah. in this country. But we yeah. changed one recently with the marriage referendum. Yeah, we changed the stigma. We changed a, a horrible draconian attitude towards homosexuality. And if we can do that with mental health, we can do that with right. mental health, and I believe we can. Well, thanks a million, Noel, for coming in. You're an inspiration. You're a Thank brilliant you. man, and I'm just glad to see that you're. I haven't read the book that you're happy now and. Oh, I am Things happy. are going well for you. And, and there's going to be dark days coming up, but I can cope with them, John. That's the no. difference. Brilliant. Thanks a million, man. Cheers, man. Thanks a lot. Great. That was the brilliant Brezzy. Um, yeah, it's just an amazing story. It's a very, very... Um, enlightening story and uh, uplifting story in the end of it right so um, I want to give a shout out actually to uh, some of the lads in a gig I did in Mount Joy a few nights ago and some of the guys who'd done a comedy course over uh, 12 weeks uh, got up and performed and I performed uh, with them as well at the end so uh, thank you for the hospitality thanks for the uh, just the joy of, of uh, being able to work with you um, and thanks for the little uh, gift you gave me at the end as well thank you so I'm going to be talking to Michael Redmond now actually I'm going off to interview him right now back in the hotel he played Father Stone and Father Ted and I'm going to be talking to him about his uh, comedy career from the early days of Irish comedy right up to now that'll be on next week and uh, don't forget just to give feedback and all that kind of thing so uh, that's it that's it thanks to uh, Andrew Mangan for producing Castaway Media uh, for hosting it and there are lots of other great podcasts on the Castaway Media website go on there 738am and the Not Now Cato podcast and there's a few new ones as well Uh, there's a fashion podcast and there's Arscast, the Arsenal podcast. Have a listen to them. Thank you to Daniel Rooney for the music. And uh, see you next week. Bye. was a Castaway Media production. Find more great podcasts on our network. Visit castaway.media. I can't believe I just scratched that car. Find my insurance card. 
Dude, what do you have in this glove box? Ew, are these socks dirty? Oh, forget about the socks. I need my insurance card. Just pull it up on the State Farm mobile app. But I can do that? Oh, hey, I can do that. Yep, it's called service. I can file a claim on here, too? Yeah, it's it's called service. Whoa, I can call my agent, too? It's called service. Insurance with local agent? It's called service. Call State Farm agent Megan Roberts in Atlantic today. 